sermon outline that says, Finding Favor, Earning Grace. We're going to go through Genesis chapter 33 today as we work our way through the book of Genesis. Learning lots of stuff from the life of Jacob. So let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Thank you for loving us with such costly love. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would fill us with faith that lasts and with obedience that's full. We need to be strengthened as believers so that we'll do what your word tells us to do. So we ask that your spirit, using your word, would bring that about in each one of us this day. For this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I have an interesting title to today's sermon, Finding Favor, Earning Grace. Certainly you know that grace is something given, or it's not really grace. And if it has to be earned, then it's not really a gift. And we know that, or we should. You know that, I know that. But our knowledge always exceeds our obedience. And thus, I think, often we don't live in accordance with what we know. Let me give you an example. This past week, we celebrated Valentine's Day. And I know that my wife loves me every day, regardless of whether I get her flowers or not. But because I love her, I get her flowers. I just had a wicked thought. None of you would give flowers in order to get love. Nah, forget it. It's too ridiculous to even mention. I mean, no one here would think if they bought flowers for their spouse, they would be finding favor and earning grace with them, would they? No, I didn't think so. We would only do the flowers thing, the chocolates thing, the romantic dinner thing as a demonstration of the love we already have, right? Of course. I mean, nobody here would be trying to manipulate the other with flowers. I mean, even talking about it, it just sounds ludicrous. I mean, we wouldn't think that the one we love would owe us anything simply because we took him out to a nice dinner, would we? Sorry to even have brought it up. I'm sure nobody here would ever attempt to find favor or earn grace by doing any such thing. But apparently Jacob was not nearly as godly as you are. Because he's all about finding favor with Esau and earning the grace of God. Something that would never cross our minds. So let's go to Genesis 33, our text for this morning. As we continue our study in the life of Jacob, Jacob's been gone from his home now about 20 years. And now he's on his way home. And on the way, he stops and has a small wrestling match with God, which Tom taught us about last week. And here he finishes his journey home and faces the inevitable meeting with his brother Esau. Now, if you remember, <coughs> excuse me, Esau had vowed to kill Jacob. And so Jacob's a little worried about that. 
So in an attempt to find favor with Esau, he sends presents on ahead, hoping to appease his anger. He sends lots of presents. Lots and lots of presents. All animals, hundreds of them. Apparently flowers and chocolates weren't so well appreciated. In those days, sheep and goats were much more appropriate. But it's all in an attempt to find favor with Esau. Or is it? And the answer is yes and no. What do I mean? Well, we're going to have to jump in the text to figure it out. So let's turn to Genesis 33, starting at verse 1, where we see reconciliation and restitution. That's the first blank in your outline. Reconciliation and restitution. Starting at verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing." that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. One of the first things that we notice here is that even though Jacob is now Israel, he hasn't been totally transformed by his encounter with God. He's still Jacob as well as being Israel. You might say he's in the process of moving from one to the other, but he hasn't arrived yet. Now, this encounter with God, despite the hip injury, is a spiritual high point in the life of Jacob. But it's one thing to have a great spiritual experience, and it's quite another thing to keep it. And Jacob had reached a high point of spiritual experience. I mean, he has actually wrestled with God and lived. It says he has seen the face of God. And God has blessed him and given him a new name, Israel, one who strives with God. But it doesn't take anything but the fear of Esau to change Israel back into Jacob, here in Genesis 33. And the use of the name Israel through the rest of the book illustrates for us the fact that Jacob is a person who spiritually is up and down and up and down, even though he had this great spiritual experience. Now, if you remember in the case of Abraham, if you remember the story of Abraham, he was called Abram 
But when God changed his name to Abraham in the text itself, you will find it's always Abraham thereafter. He's never called Abram again. When Saul becomes Paul in the book of Acts, afterwards you read the name Paul, and rarely, if ever, do you see the name Saul appearing. In the case of Simon Peter, Simon, which means weak, has become Peter the rock, and from then on the use of Peter becomes predominant. But if you read the rest of Genesis, you'll find that after Genesis 33, Jacob appears as Jacob 45 more times, and as Israel only 23 more times. And in the use of these two names, you can see that Jacob, while he had this great uh, spiritual experience, has experienced the spiritual high, he falls away quite often. And the cost of his backsliding is rather high, as we'll see next week in chapter 34. So one of the chief lessons of chapter 33 is this danger of spiritual drifting in the Christian life. And it's not to say that his encounter with God, the little wrestling match that left him lame and crippled, hasn't had an effect on him. Before, in the first half of chapter 32, he had planned to be at the back of the procession that met Esau, but now, after arranging his family, he goes out first. Verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. It seems as though once he had met with God, he could face even the wrath of Esau without fear. And when he encounters Esau, Jacob immediately set about the task of making restitution for the wrongs he's done to his brother. Before his encounter with God, it was clear that he was simply trying to appease Esau's anger. We saw that Genesis 32, verse 20. For Jacob thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And we think that's still what's going on because we read twice uh, in this passage, verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. My Lord there is referring to Esau, not to God. But I think the real key to what's going on here comes down in verse 11. Jacob says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dwelt, uh, dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. That word blessing there is barakah. He's talking about the blessing that he received from Isaac. See, in the reality, the gifts that Jacob sent to Esau are not just mere courtesies. And no longer are they simply gifts trying to appease Esau's wrath. Now they represent Jacob giving back to Esau the blessing of Genesis 27, where Isaac had blessed him by saying, May God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. And with these flocks, hundreds of animals, Jacob is giving back to his brother the temporal blessings that went with the stolen birthright. Jacob is publicly recognizing that all the gifts and all the wealth that he had received from God's hand properly belonged to Esau. It's an enormously symbolic act for Jacob. 
Giving Esau these gifts represented nothing less than a reversal of a life of stealing and deceiving his brother. In addition, I think the bowing down seven times represents a reversal of this blessing that he illegitimately received from Isaac in Genesis 27, where it said, Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. I believe Jacob is demonstrating that he was truly repentant for what he had done. Now certainly the hardest part of true repentance is making restitution. <coughs> I mean, so often when we've done wrong, we want to get by with merely saying sorry rather than putting things right. And if at all possible, we prefer saying sorry directly to God, not so much to the other people involved. But true repentance means more than just saying sorry. It involves face-to-face -face confession and restitution. True repentance challenges our pride. It calls us to humble ourselves, to admit our sin, to deal responsibly with the consequences of our actions. And that's why we find it so hard. True repentance is costly obedience. And as I said at the beginning, our knowledge always exceeds our obedience. And so it was for Jacob as well, because as soon as he makes restitution, he finds himself immediately involved in deception and disengagement. Deception and disengagement, starting at verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. They are driven hard for one day. All the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So if Jacob is a man who's been changed by his experience of God's grace, as demonstrated through his repentance, what then about Esau? Sadly, I don't think it appears that Esau has changed all that much. Sure, he's different in some ways. He no longer wanted to kill his brother, and that was good. But if you look at the contrast between how Esau and Jacob describe their respective situations, it's somewhat telling. Esau says, verse 9, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. However, Jacob says in verse 11, God has dwelt, uh, dealt graciously with me, and I have enough. It's a small difference, but I think a significant one. Jacob says, essentially, what I have comes from God. But Esau says, in effect, that God's blessing didn't matter all that much after all. I've managed to do just fine without it. And if you look closer at their conversation, you see Jacob mentions God three times. Esau doesn't mention God at all. God has become the central reality of Jacob's life. But for Esau, God doesn't figure much into his view of the world in any real way. 
Jacob had realized that all the blessings he'd experienced were not, in fact, the result of his cleverness, but God's graciousness to the undeserving. And Esau never learned that lesson. It becomes apparent in this short section, starting at verse 12, that here Jacob is tested, apparently unwittingly, by Esau. We read there in verse 12, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. And then in verse 16, So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. What's not immediately clear in the text, unless you're familiar with the geography of the land, and I actually looked it up in a Bible atlas, is when Esau invites Jacob to come to his home in Seir, that Seir is outside of the promised land. What did God tell Jacob to do? We have to go back to Genesis 28. And there we read, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. This is in Bethel, because that's the house of God. That's what Bethel means. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And then in his great prayer in Genesis 32, we read, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. And where is his country? Where was his father's house? Where is Jacob supposed to go? To the promised land. Not to his brother's home outside of the promised land, but to his father's home, inside the promised land. And this poses a dilemma for Jacob, a dilemma in which he falls back into his deceptive ways. You see, Jacob didn't want to go with Esau, and he shouldn't go with Esau because God had summoned him back to the promised land. And the child of the promise cannot go live alongside those who are outside the line of blessing, who live outside the land of blessing. And Jacob is right to refuse Esau's invitation. However, Jacob seems unwilling to just come out directly and tell Esau that he can't go with him. He, he formulates this series of uh, obstacles that sound very plausible, uh, obstacles to Esau's proposal, none of which I think are entirely relevant. My children are frail. The flocks are nursing. It's too hard. We have to go too slow. We'll catch up with you later. And though he gives his brother the impression he's going to continue south to Seir, he tells him, we're going to meet you there. As soon as Esau is out of sight, he turns west and settles in Succoth, right next to the promised land. Jacob has returned home, or has he? See, once again, that old Jacob is making life difficult for the new Israel because now we find them re-entering and resisting. Re-entering and resisting, starting at verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Succoth means booths. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land 
on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So Jacob stops at Succoth and builds himself a house. And sometime later, apparently it's in the neighborhood of a year, takes a while to build yourself a house. You know, you don't sit down with the mortgage company and the title company and sign a contract and have somebody else build it for you. You actually have to go build it yourself. And sometime later, he re-enters the promised land when he moves the short distance from Succoth to Shechem. And at Shechem, he buys land for himself. And our tendency is just to sort of skip over these verses as filler, as some sort of chronological markers. But I don't think these verses are irrelevant travel notes. On the contrary, they serve as the declaration that God has fulfilled the promise he made to Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28. And since God has fulfilled his promise, we would expect the next thing we read would be Jacob fulfilling the vows he made at Bethel. And Jacob was almost there. The hardest parts were over. The bulk of the journey with its greatest dangers had been met and surmounted. But then he stopped. Jacob had vowed to return and worship at Bethel house of God. Instead, he settles for Succoth and built a house for him there. The contrast between the vow and the actions are stark. Jacob builds a house for himself instead of seeking God's house, as he had vowed. And even when he left Succoth and crossed the Jordan and went west to Shechem instead of south to Bethel, he doesn't go all the way. He's gotten to the 10-yard line. He's almost there. And not just once, but twice, Jacob stops short of full obedience to God. Why? What is Jacob doing settling down at Shechem and raising an altar there instead of going on to Bethel where he first had the dream? Did Jacob... Uh, Jacob think that Shechem was a better place for trade? Maybe. Perhaps it had better land for his flocks. Maybe he thought it just didn't matter. After all, Bethel's only 20 miles away. I mean, he could go there whenever he wanted. Why do we have to be so particular about this stuff? Shechem, Bethel, it's really all the same, isn't it? No, in fact, it's not. Whatever his motivation, Jacob's compromise, and failure to follow through with full obedience to what he had vowed would end up costing him and his family dearly. There are horrific consequences to almost obedience. And why is it that so often Jacob, much like us, needs a crisis in his life to move him from almost obedience to full obedience? Probably again, like us, he suffers from the problem of partial obedience. The problem of partial obedience. We all have our unique areas of weakness. Jacob's bent is his scheming. Abraham and Isaac were prone to lying under pressure. Moses tended to take strong action, but relied on his own strength. 
as we see, and is killing the Egyptian and later in striking the rock. David had a weakness for women. You and I have our own sinful bent. It's like the default mode on the computer. It's the what you fall into automatically. And you have to be on guard and cling to the Lord, especially in that area. Be in the Word. It will reveal to you the thoughts and intentions of your heart so that you can be on guard. And also know your strengths, because usually our areas of greatest strength are related to our areas of greatest weakness. The Apostle Paul was uh, strong as a man of purpose and conviction, but he tended to run over weak people like John Mark. And he had to learn to accept Mark in spite of his desertion on their first missionary journey. Your strengths will show you your weaknesses so that you can be on guard. And Jacob is an example of this. Jacob came safely to Succoth and Shechem under God's protection. But as I told you before, he failed to seek God's direction. And he thought God's protection equaled God's direction. And it does not. And he settles where he shouldn't. Granted, Shechem is in the land of Canaan, but Jacob never asked the Lord if this is where he wanted him to live. He falsely mistook God's protection for God's direction. And Shechem is probably a trading center, a place where caravans stopped, exchanged goods. Jacob looked around and thought it's as good as any other place, and he settles there. But he didn't think about how it would affect his family, how it would affect his children. And we're going to learn that he's going to be there about 10 years. And the 10 years or so that he is there are the years in which his children grow up. And apparently he hadn't warned Dinah of the dangers of mingling with ungodly people. And as a result, she gets raped and her brothers take brutal revenge. Think through the implications of your behavior on your children. You may do things which don't damage you too much, at least outwardly, but it can wipe out your kids. Jacob's settling in Shechem results in the tragedy of chapter 34. His showing favoritism to Joseph built resentment in his other sons, resulting uh, in them selling him into slavery a few years later. Your nonverbal actions send loud signals to your kids. If you act selfishly, your kids get the message and learn to be selfish. Even in little ways, you need to show your children that you care for them. Give them your time and attention. Put down the paper and listen when they tell you about something that's important to them, even if it's not important to you. You can and should say, I love you, but if you don't show it, by giving them your attention, they won't feel it. And the danger here is your compromise becomes their disobedience. Your compromise becomes their disobedience. You can talk about God all day long, but if you don't live consistently, your kids aren't going to buy what you say. You can set up your altar in Shechem, even with the right motives, but if God wants you in Bethel, it doesn't ring true. And kids are experts at spotting phoniness. And I'm not saying you have to be perfect. Lord knows I'm not. But you do have to work at living in accordance with what you believe, which means actual obedience, 
even when it's not easy, and you will fail. But thankfully, there's one more lesson in this passage which reveals God's grace to struggling sinners like us. You see, I think that Jacob is the original prodigal son. I think that Jacob is the original prodigal son. The impact of Jacob's return has a dramatic effect on Esau. He didn't wait for Jacob to launch into his carefully prepared speech of sorrow and uh, repentance for all the ways in which his sin had affected Esau. Instead, Esau ran to him. We see in verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And in place of the bitter conflict that had characterized their relationship, there's now hugging and joyful weeping. And I think the similarities to the parable of the prodigal son are more than just coincidence. In that parable we read, Luke 15, verse 20, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This scene of running to the sinner, embracing him, and kissing him only appears twice in all of the scriptures. Genesis 33 and Luke 15. Both scenes of prodigal sons. And I've come to the conclusion that in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is retelling the story of Jacob, though with some significant New Testament conclusions, new, new covenant conclusions. Jesus is surely telling a new story, but the new story of the prodigal son follows the outline of and interacts with the old story of the prodigal Jacob. There's something like 50 similarities in these two stories. And in these two stories, there's first, there's a dramatic content that's nearly identical. For example, in both stories, the younger of two sons has obtained his inheritance or the blessing using dishonorable methods and then leaves for a far country. And yet there's dramatic content that's reused but changed. For example, both stories are predicated on the death of the father. In the Jacob story, the death of the father is expected to happen. They think Isaac's going to die soon. However, in the parable, the man asked that the prodigal son asked for the inheritance, which was the equivalent of saying, I don't want to wait till you die, or please die now, just give me the money. And the death of the father is not expected to happen. And finally, there's some radical reversals in these two stories where there's similar elements, but Jesus reverses the situation. For example, in the story of Jacob, he leaves for the far country as a poor man and returns rich. But in the parable of the prodigal son, the son leaves for the far country as a rich man and descends into poverty. Because Jesus is turning this family drama into a scene of salvation, the reversal of wealth and poverty is critical. He's clearly affirming that sinners return to God empty-handed. And at the end of the story, Jacob and Esau are reconciled, though soon separated. As soon as their father dies, they part company and never see each other again, as far as we know. In fact, after this time, they only see each other when they bury their father. And as far as we know, they never have any other interaction. Esau disappears 
He, he gets one chapter where they said, here's the life of Esau, here's his kids, he's done. Their descendants will become bitter enemies. The descendants of Jacob and Esau. However, in the parable, the son and the father are not only reconciled, they remain together. And this seems to be because the father has offered incredibly costly love to his son. And not just to the prodigal son, but then again he offers incredible costly love to the legalistic older brother. Both sons are in need of his costly love if their relationships are to be restored and the father graciously provides it. In his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nouwen writes, this is not just a picture of a remarkable father. This is the portrayal of God, whose goodness, love, forgiveness, care, joy, and compassion have no limits at all. Jesus presents God's generosity by using all the imagery that his culture provides while constantly transforming it. If you remember, Jesus is telling this parable in response to the criticism of the Pharisees, the beginning of Luke 15, verse 2, when they complained, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And in effect, Jesus replies by telling them and us, oh, it's far worse than you think. I not only eat with sinners, I run down the road and shower them with kisses and then drag them into my father's house that I may eat with them because I came to save sinners. The love of God changed Jacob into Israel even if it was a long transformation. And it's the love of God that changes you to be more like Christ. And it'll be another long transformation. Like Jacob, we suffer from the problem of partial obedience. And like the prodigal son, we don't deserve the grace and mercy that God pours out upon us. But thank God he came to save sinners. And he's running towards you now because he came to save you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, we are so much like Jacob. We can be faithful one moment, then deceitful the next. And we are unworthy people trying to find favor with you, and even knowing that it's both impossible and wrong, we make futile attempts to earn your grace. Lord and Father of us all, this morning we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Thank you for welcoming, welcoming us home with such costly love. So we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.